The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Please turn in your Bible or the Pew Bible. I appreciate when you follow God's Word along this morning. We're in 1 Thessalonians, a small letter in the midst of the New Testament, 1 Thessalonians. Last week we looked at the end of chapter 4 and the tremendous event it tells about, particularly focusing on the blessing that event is for believers who are raised with Christ. In this topical series, we're looking at the subject of after death, what? This is probably the only time in the series when I'll have two consecutive texts, I believe, together to look at in a continual way like this. We're moving around the Scripture in this series. But today I am going to look at the next thing to come, 1 Thessalonians 5, and I'll be reading verses 1 through 6. This is God's holy word. It is true. It is infallible. It is filled with the power by which God Himself speaks. Listen to it. Now, brothers, about times and dates we do not need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you, brothers, are not in darkness, so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We do not belong to the night or the darkness. So then, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be alert and self-controlled. Our Father, we ask, that the Spirit who gave this Word would be the one who stirs it and applies it and moves us to trust in it in every way. For Jesus' sake, amen. Approximately 270 years after it was preached the very first time in New England, there is one sermon by the Reverend Jonathan Edwards entitled, Sinners in the Hands of of an angry God that now qualifies, I would say, as being rated the most notorious of all pulpit messages ever heard in America. Not because, by any means, it was a bad sermon. It was, in fact, a great sermon. But the reason I say it was notorious is that I have found over many decades, apparently now, it's been in print in high school anthologies of English literature so that people have considered it in a secular realm, and my family at least has had experience twice of English teachers who thought they understood it and who told the students of their class that here surely was a message as Edwards spoke about 
people walking on rotting floorboards over a furnace of fire beneath the floor. And as he spoke about people being suspended by a mere spider's web over the wrath of God, the English teachers all say, oh, students, here certainly is the ignorance of a former age. Here certainly is that crude understanding of religion when people didn't understand the warmer, cuddly version of God that we have today. Well, in actual fact, Edwards was emphasizing something no English teacher has ever seen in that sermon. He was emphasizing the grace of God. The grace seen in the fact that God, despite rotting floorboards and spider webs, was supporting people. That in the present hour, people who deserve nothing from God were being held up. And that it yet was a time of opportunity when they might respond to this God of mercy who held them, however precariously it might seem, in his hand before eternity should befall them. Noting how our century scorns anyone who takes seriously the notion of a God who would dare hold human beings accountable as their judge, one writer said, today we would take Edward's sermon and we would see that the situation is this. We have God in the hands of angry sinners. English teachers, as a matter of fact. I want to review where we are in a series of messages called After Death What? You may be new here this morning and you'll hear a message of solemn truth and go away and say, perhaps, wow, is that what they talk about at that church all the time? We've been looking at what lies beyond death, a subject I think people are basically interested in. Two months ago, I began to speak about the origin of death in the Bible, not as just a biological phenomenon when the heart stops beating and you no longer draw breath, but a spiritual phenomenon when the judgment of God is faced by a soul. We looked at the Old Testament and saw how Old Testament saints looked beyond death. What did they expect? And then we bridged and came to the New Testament and saw how in the cross of Christ and the resurrection of Christ, decisive events have happened that deal with this horror, this spiritual penalty for those who believe and cast themselves upon that which Christ did in defeating death. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at 2 Corinthians 5, a wonderful text for how the believer has this hope of immediate heaven to be with Christ at death. Philippians says, absent from the body and present with the Lord. Last week we looked at 1 Thessalonians 4 and saw how that heaven has another stage to it when Christ will return and saints will be raised in glorified bodies, not simply insubstantial souls living with God, but bodies glorified to be like His own. Now, you mostly would be quite happy if I would just continue on from the end of 1 Thessalonians 4 and speak about heaven and resurrection, right? In fact, I think that's what some people think is all we're going to talk about in this series. But I need to tell you that that will be delayed. Lord willing, we're going to have a heavenly winter because the plan is for all of January and half of February to speak about resurrection life and heaven. 
There'll be a break in December for subjects, of course, of December. But between now and the end of November, we're going to look at what some people would call the other side of good news. And I want to ask you to hear these subjects as I approach them the next few weeks soberly and in a true fear of God, a reverence of God, not a terror of God. You need not be in terror. But soberly because we're talking about the destinies of real people. And I tell you that the creature part of me draws back from this subject more than anything else I can possibly think of. And yet I know that we cannot speak about destiny beyond the grave without speaking of these things. We would have a truncated gospel. What is good news if there isn't any bad news? If we don't consider God's holy judgment on obstinate unbelief, we don't have the gospel. So today we take up from the text where we were last time. And you see how, speaking of this same reality, this same great future event, the coming of Christ, Paul writes about it and says, Brothers, I know... There are those who are thinking about times and dates, but I'm not going into that. I've talked to you about that before. You don't need me to go over that again. For you know that the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Paul here reinforces what Jesus said when he said, no man knows the day or the hour of the coming. Only the Father, not even the Son knows. And Paul is saying the same thing. It will be sudden. It will be unannounced. It will be inescapable when the Lord is revealed. And today, having already seen last time the wonder of that day for the believer, I want you to see particularly in verse 3, which is our main concentration here, a dire word, a terrible word, if you will, for those who are outside of faith in Christ. There will be final judgment for mankind immediately following the return of Christ. And it will follow the way a clap of thunder follows a streak of lightning in a summer storm. First of all, I ask you to see that Christ's great return fulfills the biblical day of the Lord. Christ's return fulfills the biblical day of the Lord. Paul used that term here. And he told the Thessalonians that the key issue is not about the timetable. It's not like you need a bus schedule to to say, oh, let's see, what time does Christ arrive at this stop and this stop? Forget that. What he wants you to know is the great events that will happen, the events of blessing for the believer, the events of dread for the unbeliever. And knowing his return is about knowing those events, not when. Now, we've heard about the blessing of it, Now, Paul calls this something he didn't call it in chapter 4, the day of the Lord. Now, there's meaning in that, and the Old Testament helps us with it, because numerous times in the prophets, far more numerous than I'm going to refer to, there is this great end terminus point event of history that the prophets told about, a day when God would reveal himself, and the dominant feature, at least as far as Old Testament expectation is concerned, was judgment on unbelief, a day when God would vindicate himself against his enemies and wrap up this age of earth. I'm just going to give you a few sample tastes of that. Isaiah chapter 2, verse 10 to 12, say it's, it's the prophet speaking as if to unbelievers, and he says, go into the rocks and hide yourself in the ground 
from the dread of the Lord and from the splendor of His majesty. For the Lord alone will be exalted in that day, and all that is now exalted, in other words, humanly, will be humble. Joel, chapter 2, a little prophet. Joel says, the day of the Lord is great and dreadful. Who can endure it? But I particularly would fix upon a prophecy from the very last chapter of the Old Testament. And it's significant that this is in the last chapter of the Old Testament, looking forward to a reality that was not yet fulfilled. Malachi chapter 4 speaks of the day of the Lord. And at first, Malachi echoes the things that the other prophets said. He speaks like this, The day is coming and it will burn like a furnace, and all the arrogant and evildoers will be as stubble. But then Malachi adds another note that's a a great note, and it needs to be heard together. Malachi 4.2 says this, that day won't be doom for everyone. Here the prophet says, for you who revere my name, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in his wings, and you will go out and leap like calves released from the stall. Now, I live near a Lancaster County farm. And one of my wife's favorite things are the calves. We watch cows every day. We watch mules. We watch horses. But my wife loves the calves. We'll be driving home, and there they'll be, playing tag, running all over the pasture. Now, the older cows I never see run. If an older cow runs, he's afraid of something. She's afraid of something. But these young calves, they just gamble about and dance and run and have a great time. It's just a joy to watch them. Look at the image of Scripture that is saying when the Son of Righteousness rises, the appearing of Christ in that last day, you are going to leap like the calves released from the stall. Presbyterians, you need to hear this. You really do. Even Presbyterians are going to kick up their heels in sheer delight. I know you don't think it possible. 1 Thessalonians 5.2 calls the glorious return of Christ to history the day of the Lord. This event is the fulfillment of what those prophets were talking about. And yes, they mostly mentioned the theme of doom, but they did have, Malachi 4 certainly said, there's two sides to it. It's going to be one thing for the believer and quite another thing for the, for the non-believer. 1 Corinthians 3.13 also mentions this, by the way, and simply uses a shorthand and calls it the day. The day. As if, and, and it was as if Paul was saying, I, I don't have to explain to everybody what that day is. It's the greatest day of all. It's the final day. And it, and it isn't so much an idea of 24 hours. It doesn't matter how long that day is. It's, it's the hour of history coming to a conclusion, the epicenter in which God displays himself in his holiness and his majesty. And to the believer, that is a subject of leaping like a calf for joy. But our text is saying, for many other people, it's something absolutely different. The keynote emphasis is that this day arrives for the unbeliever, well, for everybody, but particularly the unbeliever, with the suddenness of a thief's entry in the night to steal your belongings. I'm sure if I asked for a show of hands, 
I'd see some hands of people who've been victimized by a burglar at some time in your life. My wife and I had the experience several decades ago when we were seminary students. Coming home one afternoon, we found a building we lived in had four apartments in it, and three of them had been burglarized. The only one that wasn't, a lady was home. And I guess he tried her door, and when he realized she was there, he took off. Now, we were upset. We said, how rude. You think this guy could have sent us a note and said, I'm going to be stopping tomorrow at 3 o'clock when you're not there, and I plan to get your valuables and your cash. It would have been nice if he could have said, I hope it won't be inconvenient, but I'll be stopping in. He didn't send that note. And, of course, burglars don't do that. Surprise without warning is their stock in trade. They absolutely depend on you not being there and being shocked that you were robbed because then you'll go out and buy a security system. I sometimes wonder if the security systems don't go out and commit robberies just to stimulate sales. It does make sense. The thief in the night is the image of Christ coming to absolutely surprise people. Now, the one who does come, the judge who comes on this day, is Jesus Christ. The Scripture tells us Christ is the one to whom the Father has delegated judgment. John 5.22 says the Father gave all judgment into the hands of the Son. Now, if you think of judgment, you probably think of a judge in a courtroom with a trial going on. And, and most of you know that a trial, typical courtroom trial, is an investigative procedure in which people are trying to assemble facts from testimony and learn about what happened, hopefully with the ability to convict and, and form a judgment. This is different. There's nothing investigative about the judgment of Christ. He knows those he will judge. He knows them perfectly. Jesus, in fact, as Good Shepherd said in John 10, I know my sheep. I know them by name. They respond to me and I to them. And the flip side of that is, of course, he knows those who are not his sheep just as well. And so he has unique power as the sovereign ruler appointed by the Father with a prerogative to judge and separate human beings for their final destinies. Acts 17.31 has an important summary along this line. It says, God has fixed a day when he will judge the world in righteousness through a man he has appointed. He's no mystery man because the rest of the verse tells you, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. The judge is the only one who ever rose from the dead. So to sum up a big subject, Christ's great return fulfills this prediction of a biblical day of the Lord. It is a peculiar, two-sided manifestation of Christ which will bring judgment on unbelief and mercy and blessing to God's righteous people all at the same time. Now, secondly, another emphasis of our text is this. I want you to see the sinful attitude of unbelief toward the day of the Lord. You may think there's a group of people who are eagerly looking for this because it will bring them blessing, and there are a whole bunch of people that just don't care. Well, verse 3 says, while people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly. You realize that this theme here, peace and safety, is in a sense one of the dominant themes of modern life. It's the biggest thing you could say that people expect government to provide for them, isn't it? 
whether it's local government through a police department and a fire department and, and different codes and regulations for our lives, speed limits and all those things, or a federal government or a state government, what, what do we want government to do? Provide peace and safety. Give us domestic tranquility. Guarantee that we can have our little social lives untroubled without being bothered by international terrorists showing up in our community. Just give us peace and safety, we say, whatever it takes. The late Dr. Francis Schaeffer once talked about some dire trends in the modern world, and he said that he feared, and he was a prophet, I think, that he feared that many of these trends would overtake us because he said even Christians will do almost anything to simply have their personal peace and affluency. That was a stock phrase he often used. Now, this comes down to, you know, we see it today. We don't want a president in the White House who sends out troops to fight and kill people who want to kill us. Oh, no. Peace and safety. Can't we just go out and have a president who, who will negotiate with terrorists? We'll just sit down around the campfire with the president of Iran and hold hands and sing Kumbaya. And the world will have peace and safety. All we want is peace and safety, jobs and prosperity. Leave us alone. Let us just live our little lives as long as we have them. That's the cry of many people. But is that cry for peace and safety consistent with a true eternal perspective? Our Scripture is saying it certainly is not. Let me put it to you this way. What if I knew that someone here was going to have a disaster happen at their home today at 1.57 p.m.? I'm just picking that time. What if God somehow prophetically, God doesn't give me this kind of knowledge, but if he did, give me the knowledge that your home, because of a, a natural gas problem, was going to blow up in a major explosion at 1.57 p.m., and I knew that. How would I speak to you if I shook your hand going out the door today? Would I say, oh, great to see you. I hope you have a peaceful afternoon. Go home, enjoy. Luxuriate, take a nap. Be sure you go to bed about 1.30. You know. Would I say that? Or would I not, if I knew this was going to happen, come to your home, bang on your door, smash your windows if I had to, do something to get your attention and say, get out of there. Don't stop to pack suitcases. Don't stop to get the important papers. Don't stop to put the antiques in the backyard. Get out. And if I hadn't persuaded you by 156, I would, if I could, grab your children myself and run and leave you there if you wouldn't believe me. And who wouldn't if we knew such a catastrophe was coming to somebody? Well, folks, the Scripture says it's just that dire. And the response of unbelieving humanity to warnings about the day of the Lord, the return of Christ, matches exactly what Jesus spoke about in Matthew 24 when he said, as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be at the coming of the Son of Man. What were they doing in the days of Noah? Perfectly fine things. Nothing wrong with what they were doing. Eating and drinking, marrying, giving in marriage, right up to the hour that the flood came and swept them all away. There isn't anything wrong with eating or drinking or getting married. 
or working your job or enjoying your family or having a barbecue or pursuing a hobby. God's in favor of all those things. But what he's not in favor of is when those things consume our lives until we say that's, all, well, that's what it all is. You know, that's all it is. And we become like those people in Second Peter 3 who are so bold to say, wait a minute, you stupid evangelicals. What is this about this coming that you're always harping on? Peter said it. These people say everything has always continued exactly the same from creation onward. That event you're talking about is never, ever going to happen. Oh, really? Are you willing to bank your life on it? You know, it's one thing to be merely ignorant, but the problem the Bible has with these people is they are willfully ignorant. Romans chapter 1 says people have a knowledge of God that makes them accountable to God. They've rebelled against Him. The problem isn't ignorance, it's rebellion. They reject the innate knowledge of God. And when it comes to a subject like this, they sit politely and listen perhaps, and then they turn and quietly sneer and say, that preacher is a jerk. He doesn't know anything about reality. John Calvin said, anything not immediately visible to the eye of unbelief is counted as mythical. And so the peace and safety people read the stock market report, they shop for a new car, and they watch the real estate ads, and they say, how are the Phillies doing in the playoffs? And they help Junior with his homework. All of those fine things to do, except it would be better to cheer for the Red Sox than the Phillies, but all of those are fine things. Nothing wrong with those things. Unless those things are the be-all and end-all of your life. And you think there's nothing else. When eternity looms at the doorway, the very threshold of your life, the unbeliever has no capacity to consider that there's going to be a cataclysmic end to the little secure bubble in which he has designed to live for this little while of his life. Thirdly, the worst word of all for today. Notice how 1 Thessalonians 5.3 says or speaks about the action of Christ toward the unconverted person in that final day. Now, I remind you again, chapter 4 said the action of Christ to the believer was blessed beyond imagining. He will raise us up. He will gather us with him. We'll be with Christ forever. But here's the 180-degree opposite destruction will come upon them suddenly as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. This word destruction is a terrible word in the Bible. We'll talk about it in a coming week. There are those who would say destruction just means annihilation. You're blotted out. That's it. Sadly, it means far worse. It means the most ruinous ruin you can conceive of, and ten times worse than that. If you want a little help in interpreting it, you just turn a page or so to 2 Thessalonians, the very next little letter, 2 Thessalonians 1.9, refers to the very same thing, this same destruction, 
And it says, they will be punished with an everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and the majesty of his power on the day he comes to be glorified among his holy people. Exclusion. I was reading something about bullies the other day in schools. Huge problem in schools, as you know. We've all been through it at some point in our lives. What's one of the worst things about bullying? It excludes you. It says, you're not in our group. You're not good enough. You're not smart enough. You're not good-looking enough. You don't wear the right clothes. You're excluded. Well, one of the key factors of the ruin, and we'll have more to say, unfortunately, in coming weeks about what it means, but here we seem to be reading that this ruin includes banishment from the presence of God. Now, it's the grace of God that lets you draw the next breath that you're going to draw, but you're going to be banished from his presence, shut out from the presence of the Lord. This includes the the kind of thing that Jesus said once that there would be those he would have to talk to who thought they were somehow related to him because of some nominal connection or something they had done or some pride they took in their religious works And he would say, depart from me, I never knew you at all. But here's the thing. Those who want to be separate from knowing God and his son today are going to get their wish. They will be separated from God in an eternal way. And and this comes suddenly, the text says, it's going to seize you the way labor pains come upon a woman. Now, I realize there's not a perfect illustration here because women have some general idea when the baby's supposed to come. It's not like they're totally uninformed. And yet that day, that hour comes, and the pain starts, and it grips worse than any other pain you've ever had. And ladies, you know you do not have the option of saying, oh, no, sorry, body, stop that. I have a lunch appointment, and I'm going to shop, and I'm going to junior soccer game today. I can't give birth today. Doesn't work that way, does it? Labor seizes you, and it says you will be having a baby now, today, in the next hours. This is the agenda. There is no other agenda. There's no escape. You see, the thief in the night metaphor emphasizes suddenness. The labor pains metaphor emphasizes inescapability. Now, can you possibly think, just reading this short passage, and we're going to have more to say in these subjects, but can you think that those who oppose and disregard the gospel of Christ, crucified, risen, offered as a Savior, as a rescuer to all who believe in him, can you possibly believe that those who willfully reject that are simply making a minor error that they can easily put right in this day? I don't think so. In a stroke of history's clock, they're going to be undone. Now, maybe you wonder how in the world, Pastor, are you going to have a positive end to this sermon? I've wondered about that myself. But ladies and gentlemen, let me tell you, the positive ending is there right in the text. Because this is not inevitable. This need not be the fate of any man, woman, boy, or girl in the sound of my voice right now. Look what the text says. The text says today is the day of God's grace. You, brothers, you believers, 
You are not in darkness that this day should surprise you. You are sons of the light, sons of the day. You know what's going on. Don't go to sleep like the rest of humanity. Wake up. Come to the Savior. Bow before Him and receive the grace of God. You see, the, again, the imagery of Edward's sermon, Sinners in the Hand of an Angry God, was that you may be walking on a rotting floor with a furnace beneath, but thank God there's a floor! And you're still walking on it. And today is still the day of God's grace. He's still offering you the opportunity to receive the grace of God and to be able to face that day. Don't you want to be a leaping calf on that day? Instead of the one who's seized upon with disaster suddenly and taken away. You see, whether you experience that day as a bright, shiny noonday when Christ returns or a black, gloomy, hopeless midnight depends entirely upon who you are today in relation to God's offer of grace. Jesus said it in John 5, 24. I tell you the truth. This is one of those truly, truly, this is really true. Whoever hears my word and believes on him who sent me has eternal life. Not will have, has it. And will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. Right now, every single one of you can know that you are a child of light. Why would you choose the alternative? Why would you choose the alternative unless your will is in absolute rebellion to the God who makes this known? I pray today that you would run to Christ. You would grasp hold of him you will find yourself to be like that prodigal son who came home saying, Father, could I just have a dirty corner of the barn? I don't care if it's right next to the manure pile. Just give me a little place to sleep and I'll be your servant and I won't ask for anything and I'll never trouble you again. I, I just, Father, I just want to come back home. And you know what happened to that, that guy. Did he get a place by the manure pile? His father grabbed him and said, my son has come home. Everybody rejoice. Calves leap in the barn. And that's what God says when you take hold of Christ. Heaven rejoices. The angels sing when one person sees how close we all are to this great day of eternity. May it be a day of splendid and everlasting joy for you because you've taken hold of Christ today. Our Father, Father, I don't understand the mind of unbelief. I don't understand how someone can hear your warning and still turn away and still sneer and spit in your face and say, that's all nonsense. I pray, O oh God, that you would break through with your gracious, gracious initiative in Jesus, that each one here would hold him close as the anchor of safety in that final day. For Jesus' sake, amen.